Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Matt Rojanski. I'm director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. You know, often when we host these events, I'll say good morning or good afternoon. This time, I know with certainty that it is both good morning and good evening for our principal audiences uh, on, on two opposite ends of the planet. It's such a pleasure uh, to be able to welcome you today for this event, uh, this discussion on, on Sino-Russian relations in recent years. Uh, I want to, of course, thank our partners within the Wilson Center, the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States and the Asia Program, uh, as well as the History and Public Policy Program. Uh, but in particular, I want to thank our uh, repeat partner and future partner, uh, the Slavic Eurasian Research Center at Hokkaido University for co-sponsoring, co-organizing, and co-advertising uh, today's event. And we'll certainly uh, continue to bring you joint programming in the future. Uh, taking full advantage of being on opposite ends of the planet to keep you up early or late. Um, it's my pleasure today uh, to introduce Dr. David Wolf uh, to give the opening presentation. But before I do that, I just want to remind folks that you can stay up to date uh, with all of our publications, including our, our podcasts and our blogs, those wonderful uh, new information uh, world publications entitled Kenan X and the Russia File, uh, as well as Focus Ukraine. Uh, if you'd like to pose a question, please submit it by e via email at any time to Kenan, K-E-N-N-A-N, -N at wilsoncenter.org. Uh, tweet it at Kenan Institute or post it on our Facebook page. Uh, and just include your name and affiliation uh, so that I know who's asking the question. Uh, now I'll introduce David, and then I'll also briefly uh, introduce Robert Daly uh, and uh, Professor uh, Akihiro Iwashita uh, from Hokkaido University since they'll speak directly after David and that way I can get out of the way. Uh, David Wolf is Director Emeritus of the Cold War International History Project here at the Wilson Center. He's also a former uh, Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow in Japan. In 2006, he became Professor of Eurasian History at, at the Slavic Research Center, Japan's National Research Center for the Post-Soviet Space. He's been a visiting professor at Harvard, Berkeley, and the University of Chicago. Um, and is the author of to, Har to the Harbin Station, The Liberal Alternative in Russian Manchuria, um, and uh, as well as, I'm not going to pronounce the French, but uh, a book about the KGB <laughs> uh, in 2005. He is the co-author of uh, several seminal Trans-Pacific collections, including Rediscovering Russia in Asia with Stephen Kotkin, uh, and most recently, Russia's Great War and Revolution in the Far East. Uh, with uh, Yokote and Sunderland. Um, he's presently completing a volume of Russian and Japanese documentation on the transit of the Soviet Union by Sugihara survivors in 1940 to 41 in collaboration with the Moscow Holocaust Center. Um, David, thanks so much for joining us. I'll quickly introduce Robert uh, and Aki now, and then we'll come right back to you for the presentation. And, and again, just a reminder, questions by email, uh, Twitter or Facebook at any time. That way we'll have them on hand and be ready to go. Uh, Robert Daly, of course, directs the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. He's served as a diplomat in Beijing and interpreter for U.S. and Chinese leaders, including President Carter and Secretary of State Kissinger, uh, as head of Johns Hopkins University's China program uh, at Syracuse and the University of Maryland, and as a producer of Chinese language versions of Sesame Street. Uh, recognized East and West as a leading authority on Sino-U.S. relations, uh, as well as a television celebrity on the streets of Chinese cities. He's testified before Congress, uh, lectured widely in both countries, and regular offer, regularly offers analysis for top media outlets. Um, uh, Professor Iwashita uh, is, of course, director of the Slavic Eurasian Research Center at Hokkaido University. Um, his research, which he's presented for us before and, uh, and has, in fact, published with us, which is wonderful, uh, focuses on border studies and Russian foreign policy uh, towards China and Japan. Um, his published work includes Japan's border issues, pitfalls, and perspectives. And I really commend to anyone who's interested uh, his piece uh, at the end of last year, uh, looking retrospectively at the last Japanese government's uh, attempts to engage Moscow. It really is very comprehensive and I think very hard hitting. And I certainly hope that the Suga government and the Biden administration are paying attention to, to his analysis. So David, without any further delay, the floor is yours. And then we'll, we'll go right to Robert and Aki afterwards, please. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Matt, for that very generous introduction. 
And uh, thank you very much to the Kennan Institute for having me aboard this evening, this morning, depending where you are. So uh, my name is David Wolf, and I'm a professor at the Slavic Eurasian Research Center. I'm a professor of history. So recent years, that could be just about anything for me, um, especially with a country like China that dates back for thousands of years. But I'll really try to keep it to recent years, things that have changed within the last 10 years. Um, before beginning, I would like to thank my colleagues for their help in putting together this talk. Uh, Professor Tabata Shinichiro is a top authority on Russian oil and gas, gave me excellent advice on uh, dealing with uh, trade between Russia and China. And Professor Iwashita, who's with us this evening, has been teaching me steadily about the Russo-Chinese border for many years. Um, I'm also grateful to Matt from the Kennan and Robert from the Kissinger Institute and Christian Osterman at History and Public Policy uh, for co-sponsoring this event and Victoria Pardini for making sure that everything is working. Thank you very much, Victoria. Um, I'm sure there are others behind the scenes to whom I owe thanks, but uh, uh, I offer them blanket gratitude. Um, a few weeks ago, there was a great program from the Kennan Institute on Russia in the 1990s that I greatly enjoyed watching. And it was started off by former director Blair Rubel um, who noted in his conclusion to his short opening piece that Russia's agenda has moved on from the 1990s to the 21st century, but he didn't mention China, already the biggest story of the 21st century. Um, so since this is a Kennan talk and we may have more Russianists in the audience, let me say something about the Chinese leadership's worldview. I've got a little bit of a slideshow, so I'm gonna start that off and uh, you won't have to look at me. Right, now we're, oh, well, that's going a little, there we go, there's the slideshow. Right, so uh, here you have a poster. This was the talk, I, the original version of this talk that I gave um, um, a couple of, six months ago, actually six months ago to the day um, in Japanese. Um, and what do you see here? You see the top leaders of Russia and China, Presidents Putin and Xi. And in between them, you also see Karl Marx, the 19th century political thinker whose critical analysis of the industrial age gave birth to a powerful leftist counter movement that continues even today. Um, in 1848, Marx proclaimed the birth of the Communist Party. In 1917, for the first time, Marxists took over power in Russia, forming the Soviet Union that lasted until 1991. Today, the largest communist party in the world is in China. Um, And this is a view of the Great Hall of the People during the uh, 200th anniversary of uh, Marx's birth. And they're all standing. Many people wonder if China is really a communist country, but we should all remember that China itself says that it is a communist country. Only one party rules that vast land of 1.4 billion people, and it calls itself the Chinese Communist Party. Over 90 million people are members of this party. China claims that it has updated Marxism. It no longer believes in class conflict or income, in, income equality, but the ideas that underlie Marxism are the ones that still shape Chinese leadership views of the world. For Marx, technology determined the means of production in each global era, and then economics decided which groups or nations would hold political power. Since the 1978 reform begun by Deng Xiaoping, China has followed the path of acquiring technology and developing the economy under the long-term plan called the four modernizations, agriculture, industry, defense, and science. Soon, maybe next year, China will become the world's largest economy. And China is also trying hard to become number one in technology. <clears throat> President Xi celebrated Marx with a speech at the Great Hall of the People in which he said, Marx was, quote unquote, the greatest thinker in the history of mankind. He called Marxism scientific truth. She stated that China must continuously improve the ability to use Marxism to analyze and solve practical problems in order to, quote unquote, win the future. That's a big task. China claims that it is building socialism with Chinese characteristics. 
Xi Jinping did not give his speech on Marx's birthday, May 5th, but on May 4th, the day before, the date in 1919 on which street demonstrations in Beijing against the Versailles Treaty crystallized the post-colonial nationalism that drives China's foreign policy even today. This is the famous Wu Si Yundong, the May 4th movement. Marx has been adapted and even his 200th birthday has been moved a day earlier to match China's history. After this introduction to the Chinese worldview and its belief in Marxism, technology and economics, let's return to China-Russian relations. If economics is central for China's Marx-inspired worldview, then it is also central for how China handles Sino-Russian relations. In May 2014, President Xi and Putin signed an oil and gas deal that may be the biggest business deal in history, estimated at $400 billion. And this is the result that you're looking at, the, a great pipeline. The deal was mainly about oil and gas, Russia's main export to the world, providing about half of Russia's government revenue. Five and a half years after they signed the deal in 2014, a 2,100 kilometer long gas pipeline called the Power of Siberia, you're looking at it here, was completed from north of Lake Baikal to the Chinese border. 10,000 people and 5,000 machines welded together over 100,000 sections of pipe during weather extremes that went over 40 degrees in the summer and under minus 50 degrees in the winter. Another victory over nature. What was the background to the greatest business deal of all time? In February 2014, Russia occupied and annexed the Crimean Peninsula. So here, here we're getting to the in recent years part, formerly part of Ukraine. Sanctions against Russia on the part of the US, Europe, and to a lesser extent, Japan, isolated Russia. Putin needed an important diplomatic win and traveled to Shanghai to sign the biggest business deal in history with Xi Jinping. But Putin never smiled. All the pictures and TV coverage shows how unhappy he was. Although the final financial details were kept secret, Putin reportedly had to sign a deal that guaranteed Russian future economic losses in order to secure an immediate diplomatic win. As I said before, Economics is the base of power in China's Marxist worldview, not only China. Now let's look at trade statistics between Russia and China in recent years, and we will see that China has become a dominant force in the Russian economy, so heavily dependent on the export of oil and gas and raw materials. Since 2013, so even before signing this deal, China had become Russia's number one oil customer. Remember the pipeline I showed you was a gas pipeline. There was an earlier deal about oil. So things don't start in 2014, they continue in 2014. So uh, between 2010 and 2019, Russia in China increased its percentage of Russia's export of oil from 5% in 2010 to 26% in 2019. So it went from being a minor player to being a big player. From the Chinese point of view, Russia and Saudi Arabia both provide around 15% of Chinese import with three other countries each sending around 10%. China has carefully diversified sources. As a customer for Russian natural gas, China may also quickly increase in importance now that the power of Siberia pipeline is online. But again, many other countries supply with Turkmenistan leading the pack. So um, what you're looking at here is you're looking at um, the amount of oil that's being shipped from Russia to China. And you're seeing it go from something minuscule in 2001 to being something really quite large by the time we get to 2019. So I don't wanna to spend too much time on the economic points because I have other points, but there's three results I wanna mention. And uh, if there's questions about them, I'd be happy to uh, speak more on these questions. One, um, China proved reliable for Russia when Russia had economic needs during both the crises of 2008-9, when they signed the oil, the big oil deal, 
and in the crisis of 2014-15, when even though Putin was not too happy with the original deal, later on, China really came through for him in 2015 and 2016. Second, so China's been reliable too. As a result, trade with China is now far beyond the levels of trade between Russia with Japan and South Korea, even put together. So there's no switching anymore. China is the main export um, destination for the foreseeable future. And three, Russia has only China to purchase most of its oil and gas production in the Far East, whereas China has alternatives and therefore China holds the long end of the economic stick, which is what you'd expect from a country that puts greatest emphasis on economics. Uh, trade totals between Russia and China passed 100 billion in 2018, and both countries have said they want to double this by 2024, which is just around the corner. Japan plus Korea adds up to less than 30% of that. So let us move on now from economic matters. Technology is also important. In security matters, uh, Russia has much to offer. Um, Russia has been a key provider for China of military technology through the sales of armaments, um, has taken part in joint exercises, especially in uh, naval exercises. Many of these exercises are actually billed as being a Shanghai cooperation organization exercises, um, but the only countries that have large navies in that organization are Russia and China. So when it's naval, it's usually Russia and China. And there's also been numerous high-level military-to-military meetings. In recent years, Russia has sold China important weapon systems worth tens of billions of dollars, which of course has helped prop up the Russian armaments business. Um, these included advanced fighter aircraft, the Su-35, submarine technologies, anti-aircraft missiles, the S-400. Um, the emphasis on naval and aviation technologies is clear. Um, Already in 2013, semi-official Chinese journal World Knowledge, uh, uh spoke about how China, and I'm just giving you the quote right here, uh, China was, uh, Russia was not only a, a big military power, but it was a big naval power. And uh, Putin was credited with understanding for need, the need for Russia to be a naval power. And the magazine's cover in that issue showed Putin walking down a red carpet that floated on the waves, walking on the waves, while a famous statue of Peter the Great, the founder of the Russian Navy, pointed to him, a clear indication of his role in developing the Navy further. Since Russia is traditionally a land power, the need to become a naval power may actually be advice for China with its interest in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, um, and its desire to gain full access to the Pacific Ocean. For this goal, Russia can really help China and has already done so. Here we see a Chinese poster with a militarized version of President Xi's China Dream. It says the China Dream up there in the upper right-hand corner. All these help weapons will help him expand Chinese China's influence beyond the line on the map that you saw right here, which is a combination of China's claims in the South China Sea and China's claims in the East China Sea, which uh, completely enclosed Taiwan, as you will see. Um, so this raises a serious question. Is it in Russian interest to see the US and China fight? where there have been such tensions recently in the South China Sea around Taiwan. At the St. Petersburg Economic Forum in June 2019, an economic forum, Putin commented on the US-China trade war, which at that moment was in um, uh, full fight, saying that, quote, smart monkey watches the tigers fight in the valley, a Chinese saying originally. Although this could be interpreted in purely economic terms, it also could have a clear political meaning. Smart monkey watches the tigers fight in the valley. Such an idea is supported by geopolitical analysis. 
In order for China to pursue its goals in the South and East, dominance in the South China Sea and projecting power into the Pacific by passing Japan, Taiwan, and the Okinawan archipelago, it needs to guarantee peace in the North, namely with Russia. This is similar to the geopolitical situation for Japan in 1941, when it signed a neutrality treaty with the Soviet Union in the North, so it could attack to the South, to Singapore and Indonesia, and to the East, to Hawaii and Pearl Harbor. Russia has conducted joint naval exercises to encourage the Chinese. The Russian Navy participated in the South China Sea exercises in September 2016. It participated with China near the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands, disputed with Japan in July 2019, and again around Taiwan in January 2020, just before elections in Taiwan. This can only be interpreted as support, maybe even encouragement for China's claims in those areas. If China is dominant on the economic side of the relationship, Russia has a great deal of influence on technological, military, and security issues. This gives the Russo-Chinese relationship good balance. So similarities between the two. Now I'd like to move on and talk about the leaders themselves. Um, similarities between the two systems where the leaders are authoritarian also encourages close ties between the leaders. That she was consolidating power in 2012, 2013, just as Putin was beginning his third term, also gave them reasons to support each other's political aspirations. Putin's last rival, Boris Nemtsov, was assassinated in Moscow in 2015, while she purged powerful figures in the military, security, and energy ministries on charges of corruption in 2016. Both presidents also opened the path to stay in the presidency for an unlimited period by changing the constitution in 2018 for Xi and 2020 for Putin. Although the power dynamic is different in every country, these two seem to be mutually supportive following the same logic and each other's example. They usually meet five times a year. Uh, they only met three times in 2013, but after that they've met every year, five times a year up until the pandemic. They meet in China, they meet in Russia, and they meet on the sidelines of various summit meetings, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the G20, the Belt and Road meetings. Their security is solid. There has never been a leak of the contents of their conversations, as best I know. Um, they are often seen standing together, even in larger groups. I don't know if this qualifies as evidence, but here they are at the 70th anniversary of uh, World War II, the end of World War II, surrounded by generals. Um, here they are at the, so I'm not quite sure where that is. Huh, that look, look at that. Uh, this is the uh, 2015 Shanghai, uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Ufa, a Russian city. And here they are at the G20 Summit in Hamburg in 2017, where President Trump and President Putin also had their first meeting. Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. Can you read the relationship? Oh, no, that's a different one. Here we go. So they also take very good care of each other's images. Um, when she visited Putin's hometown, Petersburg in 2019, he said, President Putin is for me a best friend. The next day, Mr. Putin took Mr. Xi on a boat tour around the canals of St. Petersburg, his hometown. Mr. Putin said, we hated to leave as there were so many issues to discuss. When President Putin came to the G20 in Beijing in 2017, President Xi created a good press opportunity for him. While he was waiting for a meeting with Xi, it's hard to believe, why would he be waiting for a meeting with Xi? Putin discovered a piano in a, open, a, door with an open, a room with an open door, sat down and began to play. What a sensitive guy. What did he play? He played the Russian national anthem, of course. 
and it went viral on YouTube. You can look it up. Putin plays the piano. You'll find it right away. 2017 G20. Um, Chinese citizens are being taught to appreciate the Russian leader who has so much in common with their own supreme leader. Um, China's public relations numbers in Russia are also quite good. In short, Putin and Xi have met more than 30 times discussing both bilateral issues and global information. As long as they remain healthy, they both plan to remain presidents for a long time. This suggests that a Sino-Russian partnership in which China is the stronger economic partner, but Russia has many military and security advantages to offer China can be very stable and long lasting. It is already 25 years since they concluded their strategic partnership. A generation has gone by during which relations have been good between Russia and China. The range of issues they discuss and agree on can be inferred by some of the dates of their meetings. If asked, I'll discuss that further. Russia has been arguably the most important foreign country for China's history in both positive and negative senses. Russia negotiated the first treaty with China in 1689. It was negotiated in Latin by third parties. Um, Russia was the first country to have permanent representation at Beijing from 1727. Later and not so good, uh, the Russian empire took the most land from the Qing empire of any imperialist power. When it took an area of, of, of China that's the size of France and Germany put together between 1858 and 1860. It's referred to as Outer Manchuria, Wyman, and it's still in Russian hands. On the other hand, Russia was the first to give back its colony in China at Harbin. Russia, the Soviet Union, helped to found the Chinese Communist Party in 1921 by sending two representatives from the Comintern. It helped the Chinese Communist Party gain power in the late 1940s. On the other hand, it dragged China into the Korean War in 1950. And there was a vicious border clash between the two countries in 1969, including tanks, artillery, and a murderous ambush. So biggest ups and downs between any two countries, the Chinese government, which is very historical minded, understands that Russia has for a long time been the most important country for China. The Chinese government has heavily funded research on key issues regarding Russian history, much more so than any other country. If you ask me, I'll say more about that. In order to guarantee the present stability of their good relationship, Russia and China have actively avoided areas of friction and misunderstandings. If you ask me in the q and I'll give you examples of that. To sum up, there's a good balance between economic and um, security give and take between Russia and China. The two leaders have met many times and get on quite well and have developed, have proved to each other that they are credible supporters for each other. And there's really no reason to think that there's an end in sight. If 10 years ago, it was still reasonable to think that the relationship between Russia and China was no more than an axis of convenience, I think it's hard to support that point of view now in 2021. Thank you for your attention. David, that was, that was masterful. Your uh, language proficiency is one thing, but you're also proficient. Uh, you're a virtuoso in the universal language of time. You, you just performed exactly on schedule, which leaves us plenty of time uh, for Robert and Aki to comment and, and to take uh, audience questions, which are already coming in. One more reminder, if you do want to add another question, just email Kenan at wilsoncenter.org, uh, tweet us or post on Facebook. And please, please include your name and affiliation. Robert, please. Well, thank you, Matt. Uh, and thank you, David, for a terrific presentation. I have a few questions 
all of which are trying to probe for uh, open, uh, some opening, perhaps for the West, or some kind of weakness in this relationship that you've just described. But I, I'm probing, I want to say, uh, not because I disagree with your thesis. I think you've laid it out very clearly. This is not just a partnership of convenience. Uh, it is sustainable, uh, and it is of should be of top concern to the United States. So I, I'm working a little bit at the margins of that uh, to put a little bit of pressure on that thesis. But, but again, in the main, you, you've given us an extremely important reminder. You, you mentioned a couple of times the 2019 meetings between Xi Jinping and Putin uh, up in St. Petersburg. And I was in Moscow uh, about a week after that. And there had been all of these you know, declarations of friendship and a tighter coming together between uh, China and Russia, and in the Chinese media in particular, this was seen as sort of a, a new day. And yet in Moscow, there was no sign of this whatsoever. Uh, there are far more Chinese characters on storefronts in any American city than there are in Moscow. Uh, walking down the Arbat in the bookstores there, it's all Rick and Morty and, and uh, Harry Potter. At a number of fronts, it still seems that Russia's institutional models, many of its cultural lodestones and aspirations uh, look West, don't look to China. There was no evident interest in China at the, at the social level uh, at all that, that, that I could see. And so my, my question for you is, where are the Russian people in relation to this partnership? Do they really look East in a comprehensive way? Have they come, gotten over a historical fear of being overrun, uh, which has often had some racist overtones. So civilizationally, where, where, where is Russia with regards to the West and China? And then I guess the second question is, does it matter? You know, given that there's such an affinity between Putin and Xi, and they have uh, a great many interests in common, do those older cultural historical forces matter anymore? Are they deserving of our attention? Uh, thank you very much for your excellent personal insights, both from what you saw and, uh, and from thinking it through. Um, the picture that I, that I drew there doesn't really leave all that much room for people-to-people -people relations. Um, I'm largely describing um, an oil for technology trade that's being run personally by two leaders who consider their relationship reliable and who have um, control over those two areas that the trade is taking place in. Um, on the other hand, neither of them wants to have particular problems um, between their peoples. And I would say that there's more emphasis placed on avoiding frictions than there is on creating positive buzz. Um, to some extent, there is positive buzz. There was a steady increase in Chinese tourism going to Russia um, in the years before the pandemic. There were, I want to say the top number was 2018 or 2019 with about 2 million, but that's not a huge number and many more Chinese were going to many other destinations. I'm just saying that's a not insignificant number. Um, I would say that maybe it's even more important that in areas where there had been tensions before, where Chinese and Russians really did rub up against each other on the border in the Far East, great efforts have been made to extricate those border areas so that there isn't tension. You hear complaints from the Russian Far East. Why, if there's $100 billion worth of trade is so little of that sloshing into the Russian Far East. Um, and the answer is that in the past, when there has been a lot of contact across that border, sometimes that, that has resulted in frictions. And in, if we look carefully at the uh, numbers, if we look what's happened, say, in the last 25 years or the last 30 years since the end of the Soviet Union in the Russian Far East and the Chinese Northeast, those neighboring areas, 
even while relations have gotten better between the two countries, a quarter of the population has disappeared from the Russian side of the border. There just hasn't been enough economic activity to keep them there. It's gone from about 8 million to 6 million. And on the Chinese side, those provinces that were fairly high up ranking in terms of their economic position among provinces in China have sunk and sunk. Yeah. If you take a look at where Heilongjiang province is, it's gone from being somewhere in the top 10 to being somewhere near the bottom. Um, people will give you lots of reasons for that to do with Rust Belt and inefficient, but in a booming place like China, well, they, they've taken care of a lot of places that needed taken care of, but that area has not been taken care of. So I think a more focus has been placed on avoiding frictions than on creating positive buzz because the way this, this close relationship is um, devised, it's not really about a relationship between the peoples. I hope that answers your question. That's actually an extremely helpful answer. Uh, thank you. You spoke about avoiding frictions. Does uh, do shifting geostrategic uh, alliances and partners put any pressure, additional pressure, on relations between Moscow and Beijing, or are they bringing them closer together? What I'm thinking here, uh, what I'm thinking about here is 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 the Quad, the United States drawing a little bit closer to India, uh, which is a historic Russian partner, and we're drawing closer to India, uh, in part to oppose or to counter China, and we also see the EU. Uh, moving more toward an American view of, of extreme skepticism toward China, seeing it as a systemic rival, uh, not to at the same level of, of uh, concern perhaps as Russia, but it's moving in that direction such that even NATO is wondering if it might have a China-related mission. Does China's uh, emergence as, as a the country of greatest international concern give Russia opportunities uh, that, that because if China's baddie number one, you know, and, and not Russia, uh, that might be useful for Putin in various ways. Can you broaden out your thesis uh, a little bit from the United States, Russia, China in opposition to the United States, not wanting their choices shaped by the United States and speak a little bit about the shifting roles of the EU and maybe of, of, of South Asia as well and, and how they might have an impact on Sino-Russian Entente. Oh, that's a huge question. That's like, you know, tell me about the world inside of Russia. You got it. Well, this is, this is what <laughs> well, I understand. we're doing with it, Wilson. Yeah, well, yeah, well, of course, that, that, that's where DC is at the moment. Um, um, what would I say? I would say, um, you know, if you look at Forbes 2018, most powerful person in the world, Xi Jinping. Number two, Putin. Okay, you know, we're talking about untrammeled power. They get to make their decisions and move forward. Um, um, what can the United States do? You know, obviously rounding up its friends and its allies, that's, that's what it's done in the past when it faced a challenge. Um, and um, of course, those, uh, those friends and allies are a little bit concerned by what went on in the United States in the recent past. And they kind of wonder what they can really count on happening. And then four years from now or three and a half years from now. Um, so of course, that's a great concern for those countries. Um, at the same time, of course, the United States should get its own house in order. You know, I'm just saying what Kennan would have told you, you know, looking at the the, at the at you know Stalin Soviet Union in 1945-46, he would have said exactly those things to you. He would have said, you know, get your own house in order, present a good example of, you know, you know, get get your ally again, you know, develop your your alliance system. Um, so, the what does that have to say about the the the, uh, the Sino-Russian relationship? Um, the Americans and, uh, and the Soviet Union, Stalin and Roosevelt, they worked together pretty solidly as long as they were fighting the Germans, but it fell apart pretty quickly once the war with the Germans was over. Maybe it has to, maybe it didn't have to. That's, that's a whole 
That's a whole historiographic question we don't have to get into here. On the other hand, the, the point here is, what is the main point of the Sino-Russian relationship? They have someone who they want to deal with. And that, that, that happens to be Washington. And as long as they can stay focused on that, that'll probably keep them together. And probably none of these other side issues, although they certainly will prop up the United States, will pry apart the Sino-Russian relationship as long as those two leaders remain in charge. Well, one, one last question that is maybe much simpler. Maybe it's a yes or no question. You've spoken mm -hmm. about China looking to the north. And one of the big changes that it sees over the longer term looking north is opportunities that come about as a result of global warming. Both the Arctic trade route mm -hmm. uh, to Europe, which China is, of course, deeply interested in and which involves Moscow, uh, but also the uh, likelihood that Siberia will benefit from global warming. It will open up vast new areas for cultivation, a source of, of food for, for China and the world. Uh, do those opportunities looking north, do you think, tend to strengthen or perhaps put pressure on Sino-Russian relations? Oh, I think, I think that basically they strengthen them. Um, we're basically looking at a, what we would call it, a, um, a revisionist situation where if the Sino-Russian relationship prevails, whatever the definition of prevails might be, um, you're going to see a, a serious shift in how the world works. Um, I think both of those countries want to see the world shift in a very serious way. And the Chinese have shown tremendous ability to plan and to follow through on their plans. Mm -hmm. You know, we think about them as being the largest country with the largest economy, 1.4 billion people, but they're not stopping there. They see that there's various economic challenges and demographic challenges that they're facing. They need to widen out their market. And that's what the whole one road, one belt is all about. It's about widening out that market to something that'll look more like uh, 2 billion or 2.5 billion. And that's already a, a juggernaut. Um, what you're describing in terms of climate change, well, this, this, is, this is exactly what Blair Rubel was talking about when he's talking about 21st century issues. We're talking about not, not just revising, um, revising how the game is played, but actually changing the board, because that's what climate change will do. The board will change. You know, we'll have to take down that quote that's at, you know, the U.S. Naval Academy where you go in and they got that quote that says everything changes except geography. Geography is also going to change. Um, which countries will be in the best position to deal with that? Very hard to say. Um, China has shown itself to be extremely good at planning and long-term approach to things. Um, You've just got to give them fullest credit for that. Um, the United States, not quite sure how they're going to do in terms of long-term planning. We don't seem to be too great at that. Let's see if we can do better at that. Um, if you're talking about how climate change will change the world, you're talking about things that will change quickly, but it won't sift out for decades. What will happen at the end of decades? You could well see something where Siberia is something like a shared colony between Moscow and Beijing. Whereas at the moment, if you were talking to people in Siberia, they would just say, well, we're Moscow's colony. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. I mean, that's a wonderful, lively discussion and it has provoked many questions, not least for myself. Um, we have uh, relatively limited time, but I wanna give Professor Iwashita the first bite at the apple uh, with, a, with a quick question or comment, and then I'll do my best to to condense uh, the many audience questions we have. Please, Professor Iwashita. Okay, thanks, Matt. First of all, as the director of the Strategic Urology Research Center, thank you so much for organizing and sponsoring event. Our central strength is, of course, Asian-related aspect in Eurasia. China-Russian relations have been one of our interesting uh, projects uh, in the sense. 
from Washington views, Russia is in extension scope of Europe, naturally, and China is basically in Asian box. But for us, two giants have been a neighbor for Japan. In that sense, we would have a different and more uh, deep something, uh, in, important uh, information and analysis. Today, David uh, show is uh, like that. So I just want to one thing asking for David. So point of the neighborhoodness of China and Russia. So now what impact uh, the uh, borderland factor uh, the uh, have on the China-Russian relation? Uh, David, do you just say uh, in the reply of to Robert, you mentioned the case of Heilongjiang uh, province as an example of avoiding conflicts. So it means that the uh, geo-proximity uh, between two countries has no positive factor now in relations, improvement relations of Xi Jinping and Putin. This is one question for you. Um, thank you very much, uh, Professor Iwasta, for very important question. And of course, the one that's so close to us because this is our close neighbor. Um, right across the water, we have the Russian Far East, we have North Korea, we have, uh, uh, and we have China. And um, we, of course, where we are in uh, Sapporo, we, we feel close to those places. Um, recently, you know, when the air is bad, we know where it's coming from. When the air is really bad, we know there's a forest fire in Siberia somewhere. We, you know, we're, we're, we, we actually feel that we're part of that environment now. Um, I don't think that we could find any single person, you know, Professor Iwasta and I have worked closely with scholars in the Russian Far East for many years. And I don't think we could find anyone among all of our friends and colleagues who we work with, who would say that because of this close friendship that's grown up between the Russian Far East and this economic behemoth, you know, the, you know, soon to be the greatest economic power in the world, it's just going to happen if not this year, the next year, um, that that has had any serious positive effect on their lives. Well, you could find maybe a few people who do Sinology who have had a few new opportunities, but even they are largely fenced off. Um, so I, I don't think that we could say that there's, you know, in terms of the human effect of how this has affected people who live in the Far East, that that's been the case. It's been great for the pipeline. The pipeline, you know, there's been a great a big oil pipeline. There's been a big gas pipeline. Those were some jobs that happened for a few years. And now there's a few people running those, but those are largely computerized pipelines. Um, not very many jobs, you know, it's just like building a pipeline in Alaska, same sort of thing. You know, there's a few jobs while you're constructing, but after that, not much. Um, so I don't think that we could say that there's been a whole lot of positive effect for the people in those areas. So to talk about that as inhabited space is not really the point here. Um, I think it is important um, from a geostrategic point of view and from an economic point of view, this is the staging ground for the middle ground, if you will, between Russia and China. Um, Coming back, and I think it's related to what Robert was saying, the whole idea of, of a, a civilization, how, how do Russians, how do Chinese understand this in civilizational terms? Because of course, you know, the, the elites of Russia and China, they're, they're, they're just like us. They, they've read everything, they, they, but they have a different set of readings that they've gone through as they create their geo-intellectual vision of the world. Um, so from a Chinese point of view, you know, and everyone who studies China knows this, China in Chinese is Zhongguo, and the first character is Zhong, and Zhong means the center. China has always been the central country. It's been the central country for millennia. They've been calling it that for millennia. And 
all Chinese people just take that for granted that China is a central place in the world. And so for them to look outward from Beijing and to see concentric circles that radiate up into Siberia and down into the South China Sea and west to the China-Pakistan economic corridor and east as far as you can see, um, just seems natural enough. That's how I would say civilizationally, most educated people in China and maybe even not fully educated people in China see China's natural position in the world at the center. I'm not saying Beijing owning all of that space. I'm just saying China being at the center of all that space with concentric circles of influence. Russia has a, has a completely different, you know, here, here I'm putting on my historian's hat for a moment, you, you know, as I did with China, you know, you, we wanna talk civilizations, we've got to do it with history. So for Russians, we have a completely different, we have something more like a pendulum. Russia is the, is the classic Eurasian power. It, it swings back and forth between Europe and Asia. And it's had periods when it's been dominated by Asia. And it's had periods when it's been dominated by ideas about Asia. It's had periods when it makes its major investments towards Asia. And it's had the opposite, periods when it swings back towards Europe. And there's no clear rhythm to it, except that the pendulum swings. At the moment, it seems to have swung in the direction of Asia. Um, if you were trying to induce a swing back towards Europe, well, that might be something people could think about in Washington. David, shall we listen to the audience? Yes, let's hear to the audience. Sorry. Okay, Sorry so, so much, but it was a good question, no, and I thought I could put it together with Roberts. Right. Uh, I, think, I think putting questions together is going to be the order of the day. So we have uh, well under 10 minutes, and uh, I don't even uh, want to uh, tell you quite how many questions we have. We can how, much, how many how many how much audience do we have uh I, the last i heard we had several hundred people listening oh so everybody for submitting your questions i want to apply everybody those of you who who i inevitably will not reach um we can spill over just a little bit uh, on time what i want to do is combine a few questions okay david and then i'll, I'll put them to you and you can uh, sort of answer as succinctly as possible um we have a couple of questions here uh about uh, the extent uh, to which the legacies of uh, the 19th century, the territorial uh, disputes, uh, which you mentioned, um, uh, are going to constrain uh, or perhaps even direct the relationship going forward. Uh, for example, one from H.R. Uh, Spendlow at uh, Georgetown University, you know, oh, hi, Howie. they're, they're, they're uh, able or willing to put the past behind them, move on with a clean slate, or conversely, Mark Katz at George Mason University uh, asked whether the, the textbooks that we've seen uh, depicting 19th century territorial changes is, is preparing the Chinese public for reclaiming the territory at some point, uh, that, that uh, joint uh, colony in Siberia, the way you described it as Beijing, perhaps anticipate that Russia is so beholden to China that it will not one day, in fact, have to return the territory. Uh, so if you could quickly comment on that, and then I'll bring in as many more as I can. Um, right. So th th that question was, what's going to happen with the legacy of the 19th century? Is, is, is that is that what I is that what I have there? Uh, it, I think in the territories more specifically, yeah. In the territories, you, you mean in the in the Russian Far East? Well, it's again not my questions, but uh, yes, they're asking about the 19th well, century legacy well, of, of the of the Russian you, you, the territory you talked about, Russia taking. So um, what, what, what can I say to Professor Spendelow, who knows this material as well as I do and is a great expert and trains, trains every, has been training people at the State Department for generations in how to think about Russia and China. So knows much better than me what needs to be said in, in, in a Washington context. Um, so what, what can I think? So I would say, let's go back even further, let's go back to the 17th century, Professor Spendelow, and look at how the, uh, the Kangxi emperor waited until after he had 
eliminated the uh, last remnants of the Ming that had, was hanging out on Taiwan before he turned north to deal with his issues in the north. The, Chi the Chinese have just been so organized in their process ever since Deng Xiaoping that, um, that it's hard for me to believe that they would not create any kind of frictions to the north until they deal with what they want to deal with in the south, um, unless somebody convinces them that it would be best not to deal with that quite yet. But someone needs to convince them of that because that seems to be where they're going at the moment. Um, if your question is about that area called Waiman, the outer, outer Manchurian area, which is the area that Russia, that Russia took from China in 1858, 1860, Mao Zedong was quite clear when he spoke to the Japanese socialist delegation in 1964 and told them, we have not yet presented the bill for that to Russia, um, but they may have to wait a while till the bill is presented. Um, I thought it was very impressive on the part of both President Putin and President Xi that they were able to resolve their long-term border issue that had gone on for a long time. I only wish that the Japanese side had been that prescient and had solved their border issue at about that time when things seemed a lot more fluid. Great. Um, let me take a question here from uh, Ambassador George Kroll, uh, now at Harvard's Davis Center for Russian Eurasian Studies. Uh, Ambassador Kroll asks uh, to comment on China's growing activity in Russia's near abroad. Uh, China's replaced Russia as the largest trade partner investor in Central Asia and become a major buyer for Ukraine's exports, as well as a major creditor to Belarus. Does this affect the Sino-Russian relationship? Uh, thank you, Ambassador Crow. Of course, that's just a, just a great question. There's been a lot of wishful thinking about um, the Russia and China not being able to figure out what to do among themselves in, uh, in Central Asia. Um, you know, here I, I talked about how you can infer a little bit about what Putin and Xi might be talking about based on when they talked. There was, there was a great chart that showed up in Oh, I don't remember even where it showed up um, that listed all of their meetings. So I kind of sat down and I started poking it around the way historians do. You just put the dates together. Um, so sorry, sorry for it's a little bit of a wind up to answer your question, but but I, but I will I will come to your question. So um, so Putin comes to power in uh, November in November 2012. And a Russian delegation comes to Beijing in December 2012. And uh, uh, sorry, not Putin, sorry, Xi Jinping. Sorry, Xi Jinping. And Xi Jinping meets with the delegation and informs them that Russia is the most important country for him. And um, he follows up on that by taking his first trip abroad in March 2013 to go visit Putin in Moscow. It's, he goes to visit, that's the first person he goes to visit when he goes, he goes to visit Putin in Moscow. And um, he then, again in 2013, goes and visits Putin again in, in September of 2013 in St. Petersburg. And before Putin comes to return his visit, he goes and visits Putin again in February 6th. February 2014, he goes to the Sochi, the opening of the Sochi Olympics. He goes three times without a return visit. What kind of diplomacy is that? That means it's important for you, okay? So I wanna come back to September 5th, 2013. They meet, when he comes to the Sochi Olympics, he gives an interview to Sochi TV. This is Xi Jinping. And in his interview, he says, last time I came to Russia, it was a really important visit. Um, I reached full consensus with President Putin. Well, I don't know how full a full consensus is, but you know that's a, that's a pretty strong statement to make. After that, he also said that he likes swimming and mountain climbing, but he was then reminded that this was a winter Olympics happening in Sochi. And he said he also liked ice hockey, which was something that Putin plays. So, so that was kind of a wave to Putin. Right, okay, so he said they reached consensus in September. They met on September 5th, 
2013, and they they reached consensus. Where did he go when he left? Um, sorry, St. Petersburg on September 5th. He flew to Kazakhstan, where he went to Nazarbayev University and gave a speech there, which announced the Silk Road Initiative, which is the beginning of one, 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 you know, Itailu, the Obor, right? The, the, the one belt, one road. He visits Putin, they talk, and then he flies and announces two days later. Is it likely that he didn't talk with Putin about it? What kind of consensus would that be? So they talked about it. And then he went and announced it. So, you know, obviously there's going to be some frictions, but their goal is to avoid the main frictions because they're doing business together. And these are both men who know how to do business. These are the two most powerful people in the world. Ask Forbes magazine. They know how to do business. Um, what did Putin do after they... That's, that's what Xi Jinping did after they were done. What Putin did is on September 11th, he waited a few days because he was waiting for a nice round anniversary. And on September 11th, he wrote his famous Putin letter to the New York Times to derail Obama's attempt to intervene in Syria, what's considered to be one of Putin's smoothest moves. That's what they were talking about. So I think, I think they're really reaching consensus on a lot of key issues. Um, I'm sure that's not a full answer regarding Central Asia, but a little David, bit. I, I, so, so uh, again, I'm going to have to apologize to our audience. We're really not going to reach um, most of the questions, but let me throw two final issues uh, at you to address, if you can do that in just about three minutes. Um, Adam Blanco, managing director at E8Q Technologies, asks about China's digital renminbi. Uh, given the growing use of sanctions by the United States, uh, will the digital renminbi become a substitute currency for transactions between China and Russia. Um, and then I also want to get in a question from uh, Hiroaki Nakanishi, who asks, can you talk about the impact or implications of China's uh, rapid nuclear and conventional armament developments and the rise in asymmetric military capabilities relative to the stability between the US and Russia and also China and Russia? So the kind of nuclear and security triangle. Okay. Uh, Separate um, questions, if you could just touch on both of those sort of, so, they are about uh, I, I know you may have, thanks, Matt. Um, you know, those, those are both questions about which I have absolutely no expertise. I, 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 wish, I wish I was an expert on cryptocurrencies. I'd probably be richer. Um, I'm so sorry, I, I have to pass on that because I don't know anything. But maybe when we get our, our economics expert in, in on this one, maybe he'll be able to say something about that when he joins our series, maybe the next lecture or the lecture after that. Uh, sorry, Adam, I just don't know anything about that. Um, and um, asymmetric warfare, you know, I've read a little bit about it, but I, I don't really pretend to understand those, those technical issues too much. Um, obviously, with the United States still being the predominant um, military behemoth, um, it behooves both Russia and China if they want to look threatening to do something asymmetric. On the other hand, the real tension and the thing that's really the countdown, what's going on now to potential military issues, I mean, within a couple of years, maybe a couple of months, it could be any time. I mean, you know, I'm a most serious issue. Here, here I recommend everybody to take a look at the YouTube of Chun Jen's great talk that he did for the Kissinger Institute just a few days ago. I think it's probably up on your website already. He really spoke directly to the Taiwan issue. But the thing that's really the countdown now that uh, is a real worry is that China is about to put a new missile on their new submarine and this will, for the first time, make it possible for them to have a guaranteed, um, what do you call it, second strike capability from submarines that are based in the South China Sea. They've always had to take them elsewhere, but they, they can't take them elsewhere because America is too dominant in terms of Navy. They need some place to park it, a bastion, the way the Russians used to have the Sea, and now they use the Arctic. Um, 
The Chinese need a place to park their nuclear submarines from which they can fire. And the nearest place to their submarine base in, in Hainan Island is the South China Sea, but it's not safe to park them in the South China Sea if America is performing freedom of navigation all over the place in the South China Sea. So if I was to look at one military issue, I would look at that one. Well, uh, thanks very much, uh, David. And again, apologies to the, the many outstanding uh, questions we weren't able to get to. Um, Robert, thank you for your wonderful uh, discussion. Uh, Professor Iwashita, thank you not only for your questions, but for uh, co-hosting this event with us. Uh, thanks to my partners uh, and the team here at the Wilson Center that made this possible. And, and thanks most of all to all of you. This was a, a really well-attended discussion despite the early slash late hour. So clearly an endorsement of doing this again. Uh, and next time I promise we'll get even more questions in. So thank you all so much. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you so much, Robert. Thanks, Aki. That was great. Enjoyed it.